listening to West of Middle East, a podcast about Middle Eastern changemakers living in the West. I'm your host, Niaz Kastravi. In season two, we feature changemakers working in and around the field of education. Be it through traditional academia, technology, the arts, advocacy, or movement building. Each episode shines a spotlight on changemakers doing everything from the ordinary to the extraordinary, humanizing their triumphs and struggles and offering a more real narrative of who they are to counter the often sensationalized and misconceived portrayals of these communities in mainstream media. West of Middle East is produced by the Neda Nobari Foundation, an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. The ability for any community and culture to thrive, especially in the context of the diaspora, is determined by how deliberately and effectively its leadership can engage and teach younger generations. In addition to the passing down of culture, language, and history, immigrant communities have to create space for youth to feel empowered to consciously define their own identities. Iranian Americans find themselves constantly caught up in the political developments between Iran and the U.S. They're also seen as legally white by the U.S. government, but their lived experiences are often as people of color and as immigrants. Because of this, Iranian American youth often find themselves dealing with contradictions and tensions on a daily basis. To explore the ways Iranian youth define their own identity and path here in the U.S., I sit down with Mana Kharrazi, the executive director of Iranian Alliances Across Borders, or EOB, the leading organization that provides training and leadership programs for Iranian youth in the U.S. Mana tells me about being born in Iran by happenstance because her parents had already fled to Germany to escape the turmoil of the revolution in Iran, which has basically set the tone for the rest of her life. I happened to be born in Iran, but my parents had already left to go to Germany. And much of my story of my, my experience in migrating was a culmination of me being born at the hardest time for my parents after this revolution and them being in their 40s and not being able to quite adjust and acclimate to the U.S. And a lot of that became a part of my story. Um, so I have a brother who's 10 years older, 11 years older, and I have a sister who's 21 years older. And the multi-generational aspects of our family really ended up playing a big role in the development of my identity. Uh, as a very small child, I moved with my family to the U.S. And I have a few memories of our time in Germany and a lot of memories from moving to the U.S., but the biggest part of it was just growing up with these people who had gone through this very traumatic experience of the revolution and had gone at very different times in their lives, whether it was my brother during his adolescence or my sister who had moved before us, like many of the students, and lived in the U.S. during the revolution and in the aftermath with the hostage crisis, or my parents who had built their entire lives in Iran and in their 40s had had to start over and for the very first time raise this child, not as an Iranian, but as an Iranian-American. And, and that really played a big role in my story of my migration. 
Unlike most Iranians who migrated to the U.S. after the revolution, who often settle in Los Angeles, the Bay Area, New York, or other large metropolitan areas with a sizable Iranian diaspora, Mana's family moved around a bit before settling down in the South when she was 14. Until seven years ago, I had only lived in the South in the U.S., whether it was the Southeast or the Southwest. My entire experience had been in the Southern part of America. And when I, as a child, lived in Southern California, I knew I was different. Just like everyone else, I had this other identity, but it wasn't something that was focused on. It it didn't separate me from everyone else. But at 14, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and that became a very defining moment for me um, because for the first time, I went into a school system and everything from what was the language I spoke um, and whether or not they were going to put me in ESL because my mother's accent or, you know, the the... The fact that I was from this country that was part of a region that everyone else around me had so many assumptions, it became a very isolating and in some ways marginalizing experience for me. I grew up at a very unique time. I Ninth grade was Columbine, and that played a really big role in my high school experience. And also, there was a lot going on uh, within the Middle East, and there was a lot going on within the late 90s around Iran, but also around just migration as a result of a lot of conflicts in the world. And so my high school experience, it kind of, I walked in as a foreigner and had never been treated that way by anyone before. And that was very different because in the South, it was kind of like you either were African-American or you were white, And if you were anything in between, they didn't really understand what to do with you because those communities were kind of just emerging in Atlanta. And by the end of my high school career, uh, 9-11 occurred my senior year. So it was just a very strange four years. That experience embedded in her a real sense of being the other or a foreigner. She now calls New York home, which has once again affected her self-identity. In some ways, it's interesting how people perceive me as someone who lives in New York because so much of my experience was outside of this epicenter of everything. And I've constantly lived in parts of the country that have been either neglected, ignored, misinterpreted, places that have been a big part of conflict and in the development of identity in the U.S. And all of a sudden, I'm in this place of power And in some ways, it's been so freeing to walk around and not have the first question someone asks me is where I'm from. No, really, where am I from? But have people just kind of look at me and try to get to know me. And honestly, the thing I love about New York, and this might be something you relate to a little bit, I was doing a lot of human rights work in the South before I moved to New York. And Right before I moved to New York, we lost the case of Troy Davis. And so in those first few months of living in in this new city, I was feeling really burnt out. And I'd kind of come out of this experience of, of watching a family lose so much and watching an entire community mourn and have so much pain over that. And my experiences in Savannah during his hearing were kind of the last thing I really experienced in Atlanta before I moved. So when I went to New York, it was being from a place that constantly had the struggle over power and 
being surrounded by people who were trying to make their community better with very little power and with very little representation and voice to going to this place that had all the resources and all the major organizations. And it really shifted my identity because there was the guilt of leaving the region that I had struggled so much in and that I'd I'd met so many incredible people and also the relief of leaving a space that had so much conflict in it and was constantly attacking my identity in different ways. But her years in the South have really shaped her worldview and the work she does today. The story of the South is really the story of America and what America wants to actually value and believe in and which voices are allowed to have representation and be part of the narrative. And it's a beautiful part of the country, but it is also one of the most painful parts of this country. For generations, Mana's family has placed great emphasis on education as a tool for empowerment. Coming from a long line of educators, particularly on my mom's side, my maternal grandmother was a principal. Her daughters became either teachers and principals like my mother, or one of my other aunts became uh, a police officer, and she was part of the first class of female police officers in Iran. She raised her five daughters to be very strong and to focus on education as a tool of power. And my mother, in particular, instilled that in me, that education, no matter what happened, if my country was taken from me or if I had to move from one place to another, I would always have education to rely on as a tool for my individual power. As an Iranian-American living in the States, I began to understand power and education as being interwoven in, honestly, the traditions of people like Augusto Boal and Paulo Freire from Bell Hooks and all of these other incredible thinkers that I read. And I understood power collective power really came from education as a tool. And that's that's become a big part of my life. I ask her about who some of the most impactful mentors have been in her life. I'm very lucky to be surrounded by a group of incredible women who have become mentors and educators for me, from my family, with my sister and my mom and my aunts, to a slew of women uh, throughout my life, beginning with my teachers in elementary school all the way to some of my mentors with an organizing, one sitting across from me right now. Um, They've all played incredible roles in shaping me. And I think one person in particular is my teacher in elementary school, who's probably one of the few men (laughs) that's in that list, but he was the first Mr. Andre in Riverside, California, I took every class I could possibly take with him in middle school. And he was the first adult in my life who treated me with respect and who looked at me and valued my voice and who honestly showed me that there was something worth me saying, that there was something inside of me that needed to come out. And he built my confidence. And I feel even now like I'm surrounded by this incredible love and warmth from all of the women in my life and and all of the educators in particular. But I, I still carry Mr. Andre's lessons with me. 
Today, MANA leads the only organization in the U.S. that is solely and specifically devoted to the education, empowerment, and development of Iranian-American youth. I am incredibly honored to lead Iranian Alliances Cross Borders, or as we lovingly call it, EOB. And it's an organization that was founded by young Iranian-American women who were in college in the early 2000s. And in the aftermath of 9-11, they were studying abroad in London and were in this vibrant diaspora community and surrounded by people who were having conversations that we quite hadn't started having in the U.S. yet. And they came back and they created a conference, and it was a space for people within the diaspora to talk about all sorts of issues that up until then were taboo. Uh, if you were someone that was doing Iranian studies, Iranian diaspora studies, if you were an artist, an academic, an advocate, an activist, you really hadn't found that space quite yet. And I think when our communities in after 9-11 were under attack, in a lot of ways, there was a bigger need for that kind of space. And these first and second generation young Iranian-American women recognized that and created that. And were able to bring together people who up until then, because of their political divisions and all of the trauma that they'd experienced, wouldn't be able to be in the same room. And it really took their children to be able to bring them into that room together. That has become this movement of young people across this country who are part of EOB and are doing incredible things everywhere. And we do so many things, but I think what we do the best is we build a space for people to be able to have conversations and to be able to connect on a deeper level and to be able to feel heard and seen and at the same time have the power to be able to have those conversations leave that room and build spaces for people throughout the community. EOP has its roots in creating space for young people to have the much-needed and sometimes taboo conversations that the rest of the community wasn't having. When EOP began having its conferences in 2003, 4, 5, we're talking about 12, 13 years ago, it was one of the first times in our community that we were having conversations about everything from sexuality, mental health, domestic violence, the experiences of migration, uh, the experiences of Iranians in places like Turkey and Europe, Australia, and having people connect about topics before being a part of EOB, I hadn't seen a space that people could talk about things like our politics, our religion, the idea that we are people of color. A lot of these topics, for the first time I delved into them, was within EOB. And I, I believe that's true for a lot of people in our community. It was really a groundbreaking space and continues to be a space that pushes our community to have the conversations, not just because they're good ideas and they're good politics, but because without those conversations, we're excluding members of our community. And the only way we can actually be inclusive of everyone and ensure that all Iranian Americans are having a space is by talking about the topics that sit at their intersection of their identities. So... How can we support and represent Iranian-Americans if we're not going to talk about race? How can we ensure that this is really an inclusive space if we're not going to address the fact that we all don't have the same ideas about sexuality or gender and that there needs to be a space for those people who are excluded not just from this community but from all the communities that form their identities?
One of the staple programs of EOP is Camp Allende, which literally means future in Farsi. The camp brings Iranian-American high schoolers together on an annual basis to develop leadership, build friendships, and gain a deeper cultural understanding of their identity in the diaspora. Camp Oyanda began as a space for young people from Iyab who recognized that there was no convening for high school students. In particular, the early members of Iyab had created this incredible conference where they brought together amazing speakers from all over the diaspora. And at the same time, they realized it wasn't a space for them. It wasn't a space for students. And Camp Oyanda was conceived as a space to bring people together uh, in their most formative years in high school when they needed that extra support, when they were grappling with those questions of who are we, how do we define ourselves, how do we fit in this larger narrative of what it means to be Iranian and American. Camp Oyanda has become this incredible space now of young people who are change makers, who have this incredible space that cocoons them, right, blankets them in love and support and gives them mentors and role models and then pushes them to do better outside of that. You can't just go to Camp Oyanda and have a great experience for yourself. How are you going to build that for someone else? Particularly, the campers see people like me and some of the older members of Camp Oyanda who didn't have this experience for ourselves and yet spend so much of our energy building it for them. And with the hope that I, every year I start the camp, I have a conversation with the campers and I welcome them into the space. And I talk about the dozens of people who've built that space, who may not even be a part of that space, but who are standing along the, the borders of that room and throwing all of their energy and support in there. And that our legacy is this room and this space and this camp for them. And what is their legacy going to be after that? And that question we, we pose for them is, how can you take Camp Oyende back into your community? Every year, I'm astounded by the ways in which the campers respond. We have members who are organizing the largest celebrations across the country. We have members who are advocating for our rights on the Hill, who are writing and editing pieces that are showing up in all sorts of publications. And when there haven't been spaces for them, they've created their own. Whether it's Aja Media Collective and our incredible alumni that have become part of that, or the members of Camp Oyende who are organizing Iranian Americans and other members from our communities volunteering in Greece and in other places that need more members who share the experiences and languages of the refugees. In so many ways, our, our members have really been building out within the community spaces and taking back their power and in some ways building out the voice for others too. And I know the feeling. After each time that I'm invited to speak at camp, I'm impressed by the depth of understanding and sense of self expressed by the youth. Camp Land is not just a leadership camp. It's become a space for young Iranian-Americans who are grappling with all those questions of identity, who are perhaps carrying the baggage of their parents' trauma from the revolution, who are trying to understand uh, and not react to how others perceive them, but 
deciding what does that mean for them themselves? How do they define their identity? And from there, whatever their interests. One of our young members is an actor, and he's been part of various plays and musicals within Southern California. His focus is to have representation within theater that reflects our stories and that isn't perpetuating the negative stereotypes about us. Another one of our alumni is in D.C. and is spending their time trying to build the rights for uh, refugees and trying to figure out the space within the legal field for us. Camp Wanda has academics, artists, nonprofit leaders, lawyers, all of the various spaces that we really want to participate in. Because of her work with young people, Mana has great insight into the specific needs and wants of Iranian-American youth today. Young Iranian-Americans living in the U.S. today need a space to reconcile their identities, a space to feel supported and understood, because in a way, young Iranian-Americans are paving a new path for all of us. They weren't born, particularly the generation right now, weren't born uh, in Iran. A lot of them don't have that experience of migration that I do. Their experience is much more grounded in being American. And yet, a lot of times, their experience is so separate from their parents who didn't go to school here, who didn't grow up here, and who don't understand what it means to live as an Iranian and as an American at a time when political tensions are very high. I think young Iranian-Americans today in particular have similar experiences to our community in the 80s without the advantage of having actually lived for some time in Iran before that. So they're constantly being questioned as Iranians without having had an opportunity to define what it means for them themselves. Their identity comes from their parents, from their grandparents at home. And when they go to school, they're seen as Iranian and anything that happens political within the news is constantly being thrown at them. They're having to respond as representatives and spokespeople for an identity and for a nationality that they themselves yet haven't understood or reconciled for themselves. I think it's really important for them to have that space to be able to figure out what it means for them to be Iranian, which parts of their parents' identity and and the experiences of their community do they want to continue in their own lives and have shape their future. And at the same time, they are American and are constantly being told by the news and the media and what's going on in the political climate that they're other, that they're not American. Their Americanness is being questioned and being diminished by everyone around them. And yet within the Iranian community, they're not considered Iranian, they're American. And so their, their links, their connections to their root identity is also constantly being diminished and questioned. And so Iranian, young Iranian Americans right now particularly need a space for their identity, they also need a healthy space as youth. Today, as we have this conversation, there's a group of high schoolers in D.C. that are marching uh, about gun laws. Their experience is very different from mine 15 years ago, 20 years ago. They don't feel safe in school. They don't feel safe at home, particularly with the emergence of technology and cyberbullying and uh, all of these spaces where adults are not really monitoring or supporting them and sometimes aren't even aware of how they could. 
don't have the same tools, everything is shifting really quickly for them, right? This year, anxiety surpassed depression in college students. That's a reflection of what this generation is having to grapple with. And at a time where there are so many political tensions, not just in the U.S., but everything going on in the world, and on top of that, they're concerned about when they come out of school, what are they going to do? How are they going to pay for those loans? There are so many issues that they have that the rest of us haven't had to deal with at that age, and, and they're growing up in that climate. experience, their circumstances in which Iranian youth live today allows them to have a very different and much more realistic understanding of race in America than that of their parents or generations who came before. Iranian-American youth understand the nuances and complexities of race in America in a way that the older generations don't. And that's a reflection of the fact that they're American. We understand our identities in relation to the other communities that exist in this country. Race in America is particularly unique. It's very different experience from the rest of the world, and that has a lot to do with the history of America, the history of slavery, and the institutions that have risen in this country. And Iranian-American youth understand that in a way that older people and their parents may not because of their experiences living here. My generation, uh, Mustafa Bayoumi talks about it in his book, my generation in particular, our parents raised us to be Iranian, to be Arab, to be separate, to have these individual identities based on our nationalities. And when 9-11 happened, we stopped seeing ourselves as so separate. I understood my experience as an Iranian-American was very similar to someone who was Arab-American because of the way that the U.S. was treating us and our communities. Iranian-American youth today understand that not just in terms of 9-11, but they understand that in terms of Black Lives Matter. They understand that in terms of some of the laws that are being passed uh, that are attacking trans members. So in a way, they're understanding their experience and their identity racially, whether they feel like they may pass as being white or they are very obviously not white. They understand all of that as something much more complex Because even when a young Iranian-American passes as white, they oftentimes will understand that there are members of their family that don't. Or even passing as white is in itself making a part of their identity invisible. It doesn't explain why their grandparents may have accents. It doesn't explain why they brought certain funny-smelling foods to school. And that it still somehow separates them from that experience of being white. We understand privileges in a different way than previous generations. And I think young Iranian-Americans in particular are very well-versed and understand the idea of privilege and the idea of race as a privilege or as a, as a tool that's used to oppress a group. In part because of Iyab's leadership and the continued enhancement to their curriculum, Young Iranians living in America have become more vocal and push traditional gender and sexual norms. Mana reflects on the progression of the camp and the role it played in supporting the very real needs of young people. When Yab first began the space for Camp Land, it, it was very much a traditional leadership camp. It was focused on experiential learning, and it had similar 
tools and curriculum as Outward Bound and some of the other programs, uh, pre-collegiate training, all of those things. But over time, we noticed every time someone from a different region or from some different demographic or a series of experiences came into camp, we had to build camp out to include them and their stories and their narratives. I remember the very first camp, one of the experiences that really defined my entire experience with Camp Allende and probably kept me involved was seeing a young Iranian-American who had come from a part of the country where he had experienced a lot of bullying for his Iranian identity and for seeming very visibly Iranian, for seeming not white. And when he left the very last day of camp, I watched the way he broke down about leaving and that feeling of knowing that I was sending him back to a community with no tools and only with the hope of coming back a year later was heartbreaking. I spent that night, honestly, emotionally, I, I probably cried for like half a day. And it's kind of part of the lore of Eob for me. But each year, our curriculum developed to have more and more space for the, the members that were feeling excluded. So the next year, we built in conflict resolution. And we realized that's not enough. It's not enough to just give them conflict resolution mediation tools. Do we want them to go back and tolerate what they're experiencing? So we began building in the stories of the communities that came before us and the lessons we can learn from them. Today, with young people growing up in a time where there's a Me Too movement, when there are so many young queer trans members of this country who are fighting, whether it's the bathroom laws or seeing the passing of same-sex marriage laws in this country, these young people, they don't have the same assumptions that we did in the past, that we couldn't talk about certain topics or that certain identities were outliers. They understand that whether it's on the basis of gender or sexuality or race or religion, that none of these divisions actually should exist, that there needs to be a space for us to define our identity that doesn't come at the exclusion or oppression of any other community. In addition to her work with Iyab, Mana's always been an activist, something she attributes to both her Iranian and her American identity. I started getting involved in activism as a high school student, partially because of what was going on in Iran in the late 90s with the student uh, movements under Khatami and feeling really inspired by that, and partially because of my experiences in the South and, and learning about the civil rights movement and the incredible struggles of people in various communities here. And I always, in the beginning in particular, I defined my activism and my identity around activism as a part of my American identity. Honestly, my being Iranian, I always used to tell people when I was younger that I love Iran, but don't love Iranians. And that was something that I thought when I was really young because of the ways in which I didn't feel included in the larger identity of being Iranian-American. 
I grew up in Southern California, and I would look at all the other Iranian-American kids, and I'd be like, I'm not like them. This must be my American side. That's not how I define being Iranian. And so I started defining Iranian around literature and history and all of these aspects that connected more with my parents and, and the older generation than it did with my peers. It was inspired by my Iranian experience, but moved forward by my American idea of leading sit-ins in my parents' living room and boycotting their decisions and using all of these new tools I had learned from the history classes I took. And at some point, I, as part of EOB, I realized that they weren't really so separate, that my struggles as an Iranian-American and my love for this country and its history as an American were very much connected. And that if I was going to do anything in this country, is particularly around at activism, that I wanted to start first in my own community. to tell me about the impact that the recent wave of anti-immigrant and anti-Iranian rhetoric has had on her activism. I've always tried to balance the line between doing community organizing and cultural work and also my own personal activism. I always felt the need to be really responsible with that, particularly as someone who represented EOB. I wanted to ensure the sanctity of EOB and its youth spaces and its spaces to be able to bring people from various political and religious and various identities together. The fact that we were able to bring people together that disagreed and that needed us to be neutral. And in the summer of 2016, I started really delving into my work overseas around refugee youth with the assumption that I would transition out of EOB and that I would transition out of focusing on the Iranian-American space and, and focus on this larger refugee crisis that also connected to my identity. And then the election happened. And I realized that now more than ever, I needed to continue my work within EOB. I had years of experience of building relationships across this country and working with various organizations and community centers and parents. I had built trust with a lot of people on the grassroots level. And I had done so much to make sure that the space for our youth existed. And all of a sudden, everything felt like it was under attack and at risk. And I couldn't just step back and and move into another space because I, I felt like I was in a great position to be able to actually do something about what was happening in our community. And she has been able to do something with and for the community. In September of 2017, EOB, along with other plaintiffs, brought a lawsuit against Donald Trump and succeeded in blocking some of the provisions of Muslim Ban 3.0 one iteration of the president's executive order restricting travel from visitors coming from several majority Muslim countries, Iran included. Our entry into a legal challenge came after nearly 10 months of me and, and the rest of our members directly supporting people who were being affected by the ban to supporting the youth who were being affected by the ban. And each step we took 
we stopped and we discussed, is this what EOB should be doing as an organization that's always stayed out of the political arena, that has tried to ensure that it would be a space to bring together Iranians, no matter the current climate, is this what EOB should be doing? And in September of 2017, EOB decided to become a part of a legal challenge against Muslim Ban 3.0. And it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. Ultimately, after many conversations with many people across this country who are experts and leaders, who are members of our organization, who would have a sense of how this would impact the community on a local level and also EOB, I finally decided, and one of the biggest factors in my decision to join the lawsuit was our youth. It is an extraordinary time. It's a time when our community is feeling attacked, when if these laws pass, people like me will never be living here. If my family had come to the U.S. at this time, if we were in Germany right now, we wouldn't be able to come into the U.S. We would be separated from my sister. And that's the story of a lot of families. And ultimately, after spending the summer with our youth, standing up in front of them and talking to them and supporting them and trying to alleviate some of their fears about this current climate, I couldn't in good conscience just stand back and stand on the sidelines when it came to this. And by the way, the hard work of Yab, other plaintiffs, partners, and impacted communities recently paid off with a victory in the courts. Mana is a testament to the hopeful future of Iranian youth in the diaspora. They are strong, intelligent, and more open and willing to embrace all the intersections of their identity than past generations. They're actively building bridges and partnering with other immigrant communities and communities of color. What's required from the rest of us is guidance, support, and allowing them the freedom to define what being Iranian means to them. You've been listening to West of Middle East. You can hear more episodes about changemakers from the Middle East diaspora at westofmiddleeast.org or check us out on iTunes. If you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes. This podcast is created by the Neda Nobari Foundation, an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. Our engineer is Rick McRae of Conscious Studios. Music is composed by Loga Ramin Torkian and Azam Ali. And I'm your host, Niaz Kasravi. If you want to share your thoughts about this podcast or have ideas for future seasons, email us at comments at westofmiddleeast.org. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.